Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 338, The Fall of King Edmund Ironside. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Matt, Roberto, and Jennifer for signing up already. When we left off, King Edmund was waging his war, and he hadn't yet won a major victory, but he hadn't lost either. And for now, that would be enough. You see, by doing this, Edmund had shown himself to be a contender. And so after his most recent battle, Ironside took his remaining men and he marched east, right towards the heart of Canute's power base. But the accounts are also careful to point out that when he traveled, he stayed to the north of the Thames. And that decision has led scholars to believe that Mercia might already have been on Edmund's side or at least was quickly coming around to it. And as he marched, people came to his banner. The record indicates that his numbers were growing as he moved. And of course they were. Rebellions are all about momentum. And so far, Edmund had been demonstrating that he was on the upswing. And so people were starting to feel like maybe he might actually win. That maybe Canute wasn't all powerful. And so his army grew ever larger. And by having more numbers... This meant that he could fight in larger battles, but it also became a problem of tactics for him. You see, so far, he's been fighting a guerrilla war, and the problem with that is you can't fight a guerrilla war with a full centralized army. Guerrilla wars only work if you can give the impression that you're everywhere all at once, yet also unfindable. You can't do that if you have a single large army in one easy-to-find location which is why many guerrilla warriors throughout history have broken their armies up into columns who move independently. But Edmund wanted to use a single consolidated army. So to be able to do that, while still maintaining his main advantage of guerrilla war, which is surprise, he started to move through the wild midlands of Mercia, and hopefully that would conceal his army. And apparently, this tactic was working, because the Danes don't appear to have known that he was on the move. And in all likelihood, they were probably anticipating that his forces would explode out of the Somerset borderlands. And so if they were watching anywhere, they were likely watching there. But by using the Mercian paths and wilds, this rebel king was able to make an end run. And as such, he was now within striking distance of London without Canute or his forces ever becoming aware. To the north of the city of London was a place called Clayhanger is thought to have been modern-day Clayhill Farm in Tottenham. And Canute had stationed some forces in Clayhanger, likely as a way to keep that territory under his control. After all, at this point, while Edmund was waging his guerrilla war, Canute was actively working on securing his hold in the south. So what was sitting at Clayhanger was likely an occupying garrison, rather than a full field army. And as such, these soldiers were probably stationed there just to keep an eye on the locals, and deal with any discontentment that might appear in the local population. And so these Danish forces were probably just walking around, making sure that everybody knew that Canute was in charge. And then out of the wilderness to the north, an English warrior emerged. And then another. Then a whole company. And in mere moments, an entire English army had materialized out of nowhere, and it was being led by this terrifying bandit king, Edmund Ironside. And then they advanced rapidly on Canute's men who were holding the town. 
And while the forces in Tottenham did have the advantage of possession, just like they did at the 2019 UEFA Champions League final, the fact was that Tottenham was taken completely by surprise by the energetic attack that came from the Midlands, and all the defenders could do was stare in shock and horror as they were utterly overwhelmed. Knut's men who survived the initial fighting fled headlong to their ships in an attempt to find safety. And Edmund, who lacked ships, was unable to pursue them. But that didn't matter because the town and the surrounding region was now under his control. But Edmund hadn't come here for Clay Hanger, as nice as it might be. And staying in one location was too dangerous for a guerrilla war. The Danes would know he was here. And so, like any good guerrilla fighter, he moved his army quickly. But he didn't go straight at London, even though it was really close. And that was likely because that would be expected. So instead, Edmund's next target was to the west, only 20 miles away from Clayhill Farm. So it was very close and probably could be reached rather quickly, but they had to move really carefully now because they were deep in enemy territory and their presence had been revealed. So we're told that it took as many as two nights for Edmund's army to reach their target, the bridgehead at Brentford. That very same fortification that Canute had ordered and that Ulfkel had likely tried to prevent. That was where they were going next. Brentford guarded the crossing of the Thames, and it controlled traffic from the lands upriver. It had to go. Furthermore, striking here also suited their tactics, because it furthered the impression that Edmund was everywhere, and that he could strike from anywhere. While Canute and his men had been looking to the west, Edmund and his men had attacked Clayhill Farm from the north. And now, while Canute and his men were likely looking to the north, Edmund and his men were attacking in the west. And again, this tactic seems to have been working. Because apparently, just like the forces in Tottenham, the Danes at Brentford weren't prepared for the ferocity of the English attack. They tried to hold the crossing, but in the end, they were driven back across the river, where they broke and ran. The rebels were now on a victory streak. But something at the bridgehead went wrong. We're told that, quote, many of the English went before the main army with a design to plunder, end quote. And that does make perfect sense to me. The Danes had just been rolled up, again. And across the river, they probably left a lot of good stuff that was just sitting there, ready to be taken. And even better, if they moved fast enough, there was a good chance that the English could get a bit of revenge on the tail end of that fleeing army and strike at their backs as they ran. So I can imagine why the Englishmen wanted to pursue the Danes across the river, especially since it now probably felt like God was on their side. But beyond the surging morale that was probably taking place, there's also the fact that England's military culture had broken down over the years. And this army, Edmund's army, consisted of pretty much anyone he could get, which likely meant that it was predominantly young and full of fighters who up to this point had probably only seen occasional service in the Ferd. Not exactly the most disciplined of armies. And as such, when they were given orders to stand their ground, the discipline of Edmund's army broke, and instead, they charged headlong into the waters in an effort to pursue the Danes and grab their stuff. And the problem there is that river crossings are dangerous, and they were wearing armor, carrying weapons, and God knows what else. And so as they dove into the water, many of them drowned. But despite that tragic aftermath of the battle, 
the fight at Brentford was an unquestioned victory. And as such, it further loosened Canute's hold on Wessex. We're told in the Chronicle that following that victory, quote, the king went into Wessex and collected his army, end quote. And that suggests that Wessex, which had renounced Edmund only earlier this year, was now renouncing Canute and fully embracing Edmund. So Edmund had regained his family's ancient seat of power. And as such, the army of Wessex was under his control and would be joining his forces from, I presume, the five boroughs, the western shires, and also parts of Mercia. Edmund was no longer leading a small bandit rebellion. He was now at the head of an army, a large one. And John of Worcester tells us that it was at this moment that Edric Strayona rode out to speak with the king. Yeah, the same Edric, who had likely laid a trap for Uhtred of Northumbria, who had ravaged English lands, who had personally betrayed King Edmund by siding with Canute, and who had fought directly against King Edmund and the army of England. And he was now coming to King Edmund and saying that actually what he wanted to do is betray his new king, Canute, and come back and rejoin Edmund's court. And for some crazy f***ing reason, Edmund let him. And so yeah, Edric was now back in the squad. And as for Canute, well, things had not been going well for him lately. His hold on the kingdom was getting tenuous, and what he needed most was a win. And possibly in a moment of desperation, he decided to focus all of his efforts into overcoming the walls of London and taking the city. Which means that either London had been holding out this entire time, or it had fallen at some point, but after Edmund launched his war, it had thrown off the Danish shackles. Either way, London needed to be taken, and so Canute set about devising a combined attack, utilizing both land and sea forces. He was going all in on this. And on his command, they launched the attack. But no matter what Canute and his army threw at the city, and no matter what kind of combos he tried to build, the city of London and its defenders held fast. London could not be taken by assault, at least not by this army. And that was a problem for Canute, because with Edmund mustering the forces of Wessex and adding them to his army, it was clear that Canute just didn't have the time necessary to complete a siege. And sitting in his camp, Canute must have been staring in shock. Because in a matter of months, or perhaps mere weeks, since we don't have precise dates, the power structure on the island had been completely turned on its head. Now, it wasn't Edmund who was under pressure, on the run, and on the verge of losing everything. It was Canute. But that being said, Canute still did have some cards left to play. For one thing, he still had his fleet. And that fleet meant that they had the speed and mobility necessary to strike nearly anywhere. So while he was unable to take London, he wasn't out of this fight yet. And he withdrew his men to their ships, and they sailed down the Thames and entered the Channel. Meanwhile, King Edmund, who had mustered his army and marched on London, entered the city in triumph. He was accompanied by an army that the record describes as immense, and the people of London welcomed him enthusiastically. Some sources also go on to claim that he sent a messenger to Canute, and, feeling his oats, challenged him to single combat, which is a move that is so ballsy, I really hope it's real. But if it is true, the offer was declined, because Canute 
had other ideas. The Danish conqueror might have left London, but he wasn't out yet. He was sailing around the coast of Essex, and then he went up the Orwell, and that put him right next to the ancient trading city of Ipswich. Once there, they disembarked and struck hard into eastern Mercia, into the very same lines that had so recently sided with Edmund. And once there, Canute's men did what they were best at. They looted, they slaughtered, and they burned. However, for all their killing, we're told that they also made sure to spare the livestock. This wasn't just punitive. They were preparing. And once the army was sufficiently provisioned, they drove their newly acquired herds away from the burning villages, loaded them onto their ships, and sailed back south to the River Medway in Kent. But this hadn't gone unnoticed. King Edmund, who was now commanding large portions of the south, had scouts watching Canute's movements. Because as the Danish army returned, Edmund and the army of England were already on the move. They forded the Thames at Brentford, hopefully they were really careful this time, and they advanced as quickly as they could on Kent. According to John of Worcester, the two forces initially met at Otford. Now, John doesn't give us any details of the battle, but we're told that Canute and his army were unable to withstand the ferocity of the English advance. And so the Danes fled by horseback over the approximately 24-mile journey to the Isle of Sheppey. And as they fled, King Edmund and the English army were in close pursuit, picking off any fighters who fell behind. And John tells us that the king would have likely destroyed the army in total, but suddenly he received an urgent call for a meeting. The message begged the king to come immediately to Aylesford, and the message was sent by one Edric Strayona. Now, the Chronicle never mentions precisely what was so important, but it does tell us that this meeting did take place, quote, which no measure could be more ill-advised, end quote. So at Edric's request, the English pursuit of the Danes was broken off. How does everybody keep falling for this guy? And sure enough, this delay so that they could discuss, I don't know, Edric's latest choice of a horse? was all the delay that Canute needed to get back on his ships and find new sites to plunder. And as such, Canute and his army were now sailing back to Essex, all thanks to Edric's bullshit. And once there, they mounted their horses and rode back into Mercia, where once again, they burned and looted everything they found. John tells us, quote, they butchered all who fell into their hands burned a great many villes, laid waste to the fields, and then loaded with booty, regained their ships, end quote. But let's be honest here. The last few years have been really hard on the Midlands. Hell, the last few months have been hard on the Midlands. So were there really that many villes left to burn? Or peasants to butcher? Based on what's been happening lately, it's more likely that Canute and his men were wandering through a burned-out post-apocalypse hellscape, where the highlight was probably that time they found that last standing cottage in Eastern Mercia, set it on fire, and then stole the village dog. And the fact was that even if there were plenty of things to burn, this was not a good look for Canute. He was a new king trying to secure his hold on this kingdom. So the fact that he was running around setting it all on fire suggests that things had really not gone as planned for him. And meanwhile, King Edmund was on the move. I mean, sure, he didn't have a fleet of Drakars, so he couldn't travel as fast as Canute, but he did have spies, so he knew where the Danes were. He also had plenty of Englishmen who were looking to join his army. 
And so the Chronicle tells us that Edmund had gathered, quote, all the English nation, end quote, to his banner, which meant that he was at the head of a gargantuan force. And looking at the records, it doesn't look like this was much of an exaggeration. Edmund did bring people from all over the place, and the force that he had built dwarfed the numbers of his early campaign. He'd even managed to drag Elderman Elfrich of Hampshire to battle, though I'm sure that Elfrich did spend most of the ride insisting that he had stomach flu or bone spurs or something. But Elfrich wasn't alone. Riding alongside Elfrich was Edric Streona, who was also a really strange choice. I mean, it was only a few months ago that he was basically a Viking running around looting the English countryside. And before that, he was at the center of not one, but multiple assassination plots, which destabilized the entire kingdom, making the Danish conquest much easier. And then before that, Edric had been one of the main proponents of the Danegelds, which not only lined the invaders' pockets for years, but also impoverished the English peasants for decades. And yet here he was part of Edmund's army. And he wasn't just some guy in armor who was looking to lend a sword. He was giving command of the forces of Herefordshire and Southern Shropshire. You know, people often ask me who I'd like to meet from the past. And I think I'd like to meet Edric, just so I can know what it was that kept England's most rich and powerful so attached to this obvious English Rasputin. But that being said, assuming that all these stories are true, there's a good chance that as soon as I met him, I'd sign over the BHP and everything else I owned to him. Anyway, so King Edmund Ironside was leading his hard-won English army towards war with Canute, his Danes, and the Yams Vikings. And alongside him was the guy who had betrayed the country more times than you could count on one hand, and the other guy who was famous for puking his way out of battle. Cool. But Edmund wasn't stupid. And so those weren't his only supporters. Ironsides really did have leaders from all over the kingdom coming to his aid. We don't know the names of all of them, but we are given some of them. Godwin, the leader of the men of Lindsay, Bishop Aidenoth of Dorchester, Abbot Wolfsiga of Ramsey, many other East Anglian and Mercian nobles, all with their own attachments. And then to round it out, he also had Ulfgil Snelling of East Anglia in his fighters. And again, those are just the ones we're told of. King Edmund was leading a sizable force of southern warriors that dwarfed anything that he had mustered thus far. And seeing those numbers must have been quite the boost of morale for his army. Because think of just how much his rebellion had accomplished already. And by October 18th of 1016, Edmund found the army of Canute. The English accounts tell us that Canute was attempting to retreat from his raiding, but Edmund had carefully maneuvered his army so that he cut off the Danes' route to the sea. The praise of Queen Emma adds that while Edmund was trying to catch Canute by surprise, a magic banner tipped him off at the last moment, and he was able to ready his men as the English army approached. But regardless of whether it was by strategy or magic drapes, Canute and Edmund were now prepared to face off at a place called Assendon in Essex. Now, we're not precisely sure where Assendon is, though the leading options are the modern-day towns of Ashingdon and Ashton. But wherever that battlefield was, this little place that translates to Ass's Hill would be where England's fate would be decided. And John of Worcester gives us the most detailed account of what happened next. King Edmund, upon realizing that battle was imminent, quote, quickly formed his army into three lines supporting each other. 
He then went round to each division, extorting them and adjuring them, mindful of their former valor and successes, to defend themselves and his kingdom from the rapacities of the Danes, and that they were going to engage with those whom they had conquered before, end quote. It would have been a good speech. And as Edmund bolstered the morale of his men, Canute, across the field, slowly marched his forces down to level ground. He was positioning them well on the battlefield so that they could dig their heels in and hold their shield walls strong. Seeing that the Danes were on the move, Edmund cut off his speech and gave the command to his men to rush forward into a quick charge on his signal. I don't know why he did this. Maybe he thought that numerically he was in a better position to assault Canute's men from the front. Maybe he was just taken by surprise. Or maybe he was worried that the Danes might bring in reinforcements or move into even better ground or find some way to escape. We really don't know. But the strength of the English army, even before they were English, was found in their shield walls, in their positioning. And Edmund was abandoning all of that. And we're told that the English, quote, fell suddenly on the enemy, end quote. The Chronicle simply tells us that, quote, they fiercely came together, end quote. So the fighting began to rage. And Henry of Huntingdon tells us that Edmund had initially been positioned near the Dragon Banner of Wessex, but still behind his frontline fighters. Though when the fighting grew desperate, Edmund surged forward and, quote, he split the line like lightning, brandishing a sword chosen and worthy of the arm of the young Edmund, and tearing into the line, he pressed through the center and left his warriors to overwhelm it, end quote. But despite any individual heroics, the day dragged on and the fighting grew savage. John of Worcester speaks of how, quote, both armies fought with desperation, and many fell on either side, end quote. And among the people who were in the middle of this brutal melee was one Edric Straona, and he saw men falling all around him. And Edric was a man who paid close attention to who was on top, and who might be able to give him the best political advantage in the moment. So as the casualties mounted, I suspect that Edric began to make the same calculation he always made. How could he benefit from this? And according to the Chronicle, Edric made his decision. He fled the battle, along with his men from Herefordshire and southern Shropshire. And in doing so, a huge portion of the English army abandoned the fight and their king. Once again, Edric Streona had betrayed a king. But John of Worcester takes this one step farther. He says it was outright treason. He states that Edric and Canute had been planning this route right from the start, and that he'd been working with Canute this entire time. And that honestly isn't outside of the realm of possibility. Edric was certainly motivated by personal gain. So maybe Canute made him a really good offer. But the trouble is that in the Chronicle and in later accounts, Edric is consistently written as the main villain, which I know, shocking, right? But it is important to remember that the entries in the Chronicle for this era were written for, wait for it, Canute. And you know who might have wanted to have the fault of everything being laid at the feet of an English traitor? Canute would. So we do have to consider that motive when we're looking at the records. But that being said, even though the scribes might have had a dog in the fight here, Edric still could have been just as treacherous as the accounts claim. But either way, John tells us that, quote, the traitor Edric Striona 
perceiving that the ranks of the Danes were wavering and that the English were getting the victory, fled with the Magonseta and the division he commanded, end quote. Following this retreat, the English were left with a dangerous opening in their front lines. Other detachments soon began to break, and suddenly the whole English army was being rolled up by the Danes. Many highborn figures from the English resistance, along with countless numbers of the Ferd, were killed in the ensuing chaos. We're told that Godwinna of East Anglia, Ulfgel Snelling, Athelweird, and even Elderman Elfrich of Hampshire were slain in the fighting. And yeah, you heard that right. Elfrich of Hampshire, the longest serving of Athelred's elderman who had likely only accomplished his longevity because he managed to nope out of every battle at the last minute, had died in battle, which is some serious final destination shit. But the fact was that Assendon had gone terribly for the English. So badly that even Bishop Aidenoth of Dorchester and Abbot Wolf Siga of Ramsey, who were apparently only there to offer prayers to the fighters, had also been slaughtered in the rout. A bloody chaos had descended on Edmund and his army. Furthermore, with the fall of those holy men, sacred relics and the bones of saints were also lost to the Yams Vikings and other advancing fighters of Canute. And as such, at the end of the day, it was Odin, not Jesus, who stood triumphant. John and the Chronicle agree that almost all of the English nobility were brought low at Assendon. This had been an unmitigated disaster. And King Edmund, who had survived the battle, was forced to flee. He was once again a hunted man. But he wasn't out of the fight yet. And he had proven that he was at his most dangerous when he was a rebel king. So he ran. He ran west, back to the lands that supported him, to the territory that was governed by one of his surviving eldermen, Leofwina. It was also land that was near Wales, who were likely allies of the rebel king. And so as he ran there, he was also likely reaching out to Wales for support. But Canute was hot on his heels. And at Gloucestershire, there might have been another battle. The Chronicle doesn't mention it, but other sources speak of a second battle that followed immediately after Assendon, possibly located north of the Forest of Dean. And I do find that entirely plausible. It's even possible that Edmund instigated the fight. After all, he had been in worse positions before. He'd begun his campaign virtually alone, and his war had seen continual gains over the Danish occupation, with the only exception being Assendon. And like Alfred before him, Edmund was earning the love of the people and becoming something of a folk hero. They were now calling him Ironsides on account of his stout resistance against the Danish occupation. Looking at it this way, it makes sense why Edmund would have wanted to continue his war and why he would have believed he was in a good position to do it. He was reasonably close to the place where he had begun this fight, the same place where he and Alfred had carried out their guerrilla rebellions. And as such, I think it's entirely possible that he did fight a second battle, possibly some form of ambush shortly after Assendon. After all, those tactics had served him in the past and they could still win this war. But morale was starting to break. And John of Worcester tells us that at some point after Assendon, Edmund was in the planning stages of another assault on Canute when one of his advisors spoke up. It was Edric Strayona. It's Brittany, bitch. Yeah, apparently he was still a member of Edmund's noble council for some crazy reason. And surprising no one, Edric thought that they shouldn't fight the Danes. Instead, he thought that King Edmund should give up the north 
and allowed Canute to reign as an independent king up there in exchange for a peace treaty. I'm sure that he pointed to the treaty that Alfred had struck with Guthrum as a precedent for this, but however he made his point, the other advisors of the king began to listen to him. To Edric. Yeah, they were listening to Edric Strayona. Seriously, what is up with this guy? But the fact was that Edmund couldn't fight a war if he didn't have support. And so with much reluctance, King Edmund sent a messenger and offered to partition the kingdom in exchange for peace with Canute. Meanwhile, in the Danish camp, Canute's advisors were arguing the same thing. The fact was that no one wanted to face another guerrilla war with this rebel king. And so when the messenger arrived, they agreed that the two kings would exchange hostages and then meet on an island in the Severn, near Deerhurst. Once there, Edmund and the English forces positioned themselves on the western bank, with Canute and his men on the eastern bank. At the appointed time, both kings were rowed out on fishing boats to the island in the middle of the river. And that island was actually an ironic choice, because years earlier, it had been home to a young monk named Alfhea. Alfhea had become famous when he became the Archbishop of Canterbury, and then was captured, pelted with ox heads, and killed by the Yom's Vikings at Greenwich. And as you might remember, this was an event that was so troubling that it led one of the leaders of the Yom's Vikings, Thorkell the Tall, to switch sides and join the English. Well, years later, now the two kings were at his old home. And despite the connection to the martyred archbishop, this island would be the site where the Danes, which included Thorkell, would acquire half the kingdom of England, functionally ending that kingdom. Based on the agreement between Edmund and Canute, Wessex would be ruled by Edmund, as well as portions of Mercia, but the rest of the country, which lay to the north of the Thames, would be governed by Canute. The old Dane law was back. Edmund would only rule in the south. And that wasn't all. Canute didn't just want the lands north of the Thames. He also wanted a tribute to be paid to his army. And only then was an oath of friendship between the two kings established. Oh, and Henry of Huntingdon also claimed they fought a duel during this whole thing, but he's the only one who said that, and he was writing long after everyone was dead. So honestly, I think that story is less about what actually happened and more about how weird it is that the Normans romanticized the English. And so, after they almost certainly didn't fight a duel, the two kings left the island, gathered up their forces, and departed the area, leaving to rule their respective kingdoms. And that, it turned out, was a huge bummer for London, because London lay to the north of the Thames, and that made it Canute's territory. And Canute, as well as his men, were still pretty raw about how many lives had been lost in their attempts to win the city. And so for London, peace hadn't been established. Instead, they were forced to pay their own separate Dane guild if they wanted to have peace with Canute. And rather than getting butchered by the Danes, the city of London did decide to pay it. And afterwards, the Danes occupied and likely quartered the city over the winter. But at last, the war was over, and King Edmund Ironside could reign in peace. Weeks later, on the Feast of St. Andrew, King Edmund died, and we have no idea why. Some scholars assume that it was due to wounds sustained in battle, but the contemporary records don't mention any wounds. 
It's possible, I suppose. I mean, he had been entrenched in pretty much a year of continuous war, so wounds, or even just illness from exhaustion and deprivation, wouldn't be out of the question. But the record doesn't tell us, so we're left just to guess. Furthermore, the contemporary records don't tell us where he died. Some later accounts claim Edmund died at Oxford, which was close to the border of Canute's New Kingdom. Some others claim it was in London, which would be strange since it was occupied by Canute's men at the time. But the contemporary records don't shed any light on it, and that silence has given room to later writers to fill in the gaps with their own accounts. And that's why, within a few decades, the post-Norman conquest sources begin to blame Edric Strayona for the king's death. One of the writers who accused Edric of regicide was William of Malmesbury. In William's account, Edric hired two assassins to kill the king by shoving an iron hook up his butt, which is a graphic choice. Henry of Huntington, who apparently didn't want to be outdone, said Edric Strayona's son spent an evening hiding in the cesspool below the king's loo. And then, when the royal presence revealed itself above him, Edric's son took out a dagger and stabbed him twice in the and dick. And while these accounts are creative, they are rather questionable. And what casts even more doubt on their veracity is the fact that decades had passed without anyone accusing Edric of Edmund's murder. And it's not like the Chronicle was shy about tossing shade at Edric. The scribes didn't even have any trouble accusing of a murder on occasion. But they didn't make any accusations regarding this murder. Furthermore, we don't have any other contemporary accounts, including accounts that are not connected to Canute, that point the finger at Edric. So even though he was pretty much the worst, it's really hard to conclusively say that Edric was involved in the murder of the king. Now, you might also be wondering if Canute was involved in Edmund's death. And the truth is, I don't know. I can tell you that none of the contemporary sources accuse Canute of being involved in Edmund's death. But then again, he was the one commissioning the reports. So it's not like they're going to be like, hey, by the way, boss went and killed the previous boss. Furthermore, I can tell you that later sources do go on to say how saddened Canute was when he heard of Edmund's death. And actually, they claim that Canute was appalled when he learned that Edric retreated at Assendon because he wanted to throw the battle in his direction. And if you ask me, that is really laying it on a bit thick. But having writers who are ham-fisted about professing your innocence isn't proof that you're actually a murderer. It might just be proof that you hired the medieval version of J.J. Abrams. And here's the biggest piece of evidence that I want to make sure you're clear on. There is no evidence that Edmund was murdered at all. None. We don't know how he died at all, period. We certainly don't know he was murdered. We do have some pulpy crime novel descriptions from William and Henry, but there's no evidence either in the contemporary records or in the archaeological record pointing to the murder of the king. And since some historians boldly claim that Edmund died of wounds that were sustained in battle, I really can't say this strongly enough. We genuinely don't know how Edmund died. There is no contemporary record for how he died, be it via wounds, butt stabs, dysentery, whatever. All we're told is that he died. And let's face it, the House of Wessex weren't exactly known for being particularly healthy, and the last year had been rough, so it isn't out of the question that King Edmund just died. But however it happened, and wherever he took his final breath, we know that he was buried at Glastonbury, along with his grandfather, Edgar the Peaceable. His wife, Eldgith, 
was now a widow and she had an infant son and was either pregnant or also had another newborn. So there's technically an heir to the throne of Wessex. But that was also only a technicality because no one was willing to pledge themselves to a baby. Edmund had only reigned as king for a matter of months and all of them had been marked by war. He never knew rule the way his father or grandfather had. His reign wasn't one marked by courtly politics or palace living. He was a fighter. His court was in the battlefield. His palaces were the encampments he established with his fyrd. And it is through his son, Edward the Exile, that the House of Windsor can claim descent from the line of Alfred. And so, in the most circuitous way possible, Edmund had successfully secured the throne for his line. But that was also generations away. And as for right now, in the early 11th century, the throne was lost. According to Florence of Worcester, Edmund had declared that Canute would be his successor, which I find highly unlikely since he had a couple sons and, well, it's not like Edmund and Canute were best friends. The dude had literally come over as a conqueror. And my suspicion is that Florence's version was the party line from Canute. But when the House of Wessex only had an infant heir, it's not like the English nobles had much left to rally around. And so, on January 6th of 1017, Canute was crowned as the king of all England. The king is dead. Long live the king. This is how we do. We make a move and act the fool while we up in the club. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on a bunch of social media, and you can find links to any of them in the community section of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Fresh like, uh, Impala, uh, Chrome Hydraulics.